Welcome to Trauma and the Developing Child, Unintended Tragedies of COVID-19. My name is Christine Rogers, and I am an occupational therapist, and I am delighted to be doing GMHC with you in your living room, at home, at your school, your university, or maybe even your place of work. So thank you. Thank you for attending the GMHC from where you're most comfortable. Today, we're going to be talking about trauma and specifically the impact that has on the neurodevelopment of a child. Now, what does that have to do with COVID-19, you might be asking? Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Now, my anticipation is that 20 to 30 years from now, this is going to be one of those memes that pops up and they say, what is this? And it's the key identifier with whether you were born before or after 2020. <laughs> this image has all gotten branded in our minds. And the first thing we think of when we see it is coronavirus. This is a pandemic that has absolutely impacted each of our lives individually, as a community, as a nation, and quite honestly, across the globe. We're forever going to see this image and think the dreaded year of 2020. We're going to think of face masks and ridiculous amounts of hand sanitizer and that time where we had to drive to 13 different grocery stores to try to find toilet paper. <laughs> and while sheltering in place, which has certainly been a part of this pandemic, has protected us from one harm, it has also exposed us to another. It's exposed all of us to those feelings of loneliness and isolation. Maybe with that has come a little bit of disrupted mental health, unregulated emotions. And I think all of us on some level have experienced some stress, some fear, and some anxiety. For some of us and for many across the globe, this has disrupted our ability to hold a job, our ability to access food, certainly our ability to educate our children, even our ability to pay rent or have a place to live. For those who are living in environments that were susceptible to trauma before coronavirus are now unable to escape from that environment. Sheltering in place has trapped those living in environments of abuse or neglect or violence from ever being able to leave. So a child who may have been living in that environment before had an outlet in school or in after-school activities. For that wife or that husband who was a victim of domestic abuse, they had an outlet in going to work or seeing friends. That's not possible anymore in the day of coronavirus. As instability at home is intensifying, stressors are only increasing, and we're seeing that as isolation persists, drug and alcohol abuse is becoming more likely. On top of that, we're seeing that the racial disparity that exists for COVID is similarly being expressed in the presence of adverse childhood experiences. So what that means is that COVID-19 is not playing fair. It's, it's impacting those who are of racial or ethnic minorities more than those who are not. We're seeing higher numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and even death. What's even more not fair is that among those same individuals, the very efforts that we're taking to try to slow the spread of COVID is impacting them more. So we're seeing that they're having more lost wages. We're seeing that they have more reduced access to services and that we're seeing that they have higher levels of stress than the majority. Similarly, we're seeing the same thing among adverse childhood experiences. Individuals who are minorities are more likely to experience this big word, adverse childhood experiences, than others. So what are adverse childhood experiences? Well, they're simply defined as traumatic events that a child may experience before the age of 18. The American Academy of Pediatrics called the ACE study the most important study that you have probably never heard of. And so that's what we're going to jump into today. Not only because this is an incredibly important study for your practice as a healthcare professional, but even more so because this is a really crucial study for the day and age that we find ourselves in. 
The ACE study has its origins um, actually in an obesity clinic in San Diego. It was started in 1985 by this gentleman, Dr. Vincent Valetti. He was the chief of Kaiser Permanente's Department of Preventative Medicine in San Diego. And he was conducting at the time an obesity clinic specifically for individuals who were somewhere between the range of 100 to 600 pounds overweight. And he was discouraged because he was hitting dramatic dropout rates, sometimes as high as 50% of his participants were dropping out. They started noticing, you know, the strange thing is when I go back and look at the people who are dropping out, it's the individuals who are actually losing a lot of weight. And so he started asking himself, why would somebody who's experiencing so much success want to stop what they're doing? So he started conducting some exit interviews to find out what was going on. And unfortunately, his finding was quite devastating. He found that most of the individuals who were in the study and dropping out had experienced sexual abuse in their childhood. He asked one woman that question, and she started tearing up and thanked him for asking the question. She said that when she was raped at age 23, that she had gained over 105 pounds that following year. She said, overweight is overlooked. And that's the way I needed to be. As a follow-up, Dr. Folletti reached out to the CDC and said that we need to be doing a much larger study to look at what is the impact of abuse and trauma on health. And what he found was that in the mid-1990s, they completed a 17,000-person study and found that childhood trauma is one of the largest indicators of disease, disability, social problems, and eventually even early death. So the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, the ACE study, defines adverse childhood experiences by these 10 areas, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, and these five areas of household dysfunction, mental illness, an incarcerated relative, domestic violence in the home, substance abuse, and divorce. What they found was that the frequency was really quite alarming. More than two-thirds of their individuals had experienced more than one ACE. So an ACE score of one is often what we'll call it. Um, however, one out of eight of the individuals in this study had an ACE score of four or higher. What was particularly interesting about this study is that the majority of those 17,000 participants were white, middle-class, college graduates, um, because these were the individuals who were on Kaiser Permanente's insurance plans. What they found was that those who had an ACE score of four or more, those one out of every eight individuals, were 2.2 times as likely to have ischemic heart disease, 2.4 times as likely to have a stroke, 1.9 times as likely to have cancer, and 1.6 times as likely to have diabetes. Now, you might be looking at this and thinking, I don't think those numbers really seem that high. But if you had a particular snack that you had in your pantry or maybe a medicine that's in your medicine cabinet and you knew, you know, if you take this, you're going to be twice as likely to have cancer or twice as likely to have a stroke. Is there any chance that that would still be allowed to be on your shelf? Is there any chance that that would still be allowed to be on the shelf in the supermarket? Absolutely not. But what's even more devastating is not only were these ACE scores this likely to make you have these health diseases so much more, but it was also 12.2 times as likely to have you attempt suicide. 10.3 times as likely to use injection drugs, and 7.4 times as likely to be an alcoholic. So I'm going to read you a bit of Shree's story. Shree is just a made-up story, but it's one that gives maybe a painted picture of what it would look like to have adverse childhood experiences. And let's find out what happens to Shree. Shree is an 11-year-old girl who has grown up in one of New York City's poorest neighborhoods with high levels of community violence. Already in her young life, she knows three people who have been murdered. Her father went to prison last year for physically abusing Shree since she was a little girl. Whenever her father drank too much, 
he would hit and verbally abuse Shree and her mother. Shree and her parents used to live in an apartment in Queens. However, soon after her father went to jail, COVID-19 hit. Shree's babysitter said that she could no longer watch Shree in the evenings when her mother needed to work. Unable to leave Shree alone, her mother soon lost her job and the family was forced to move out of their apartment. Shree and her mother were homeless for several months until they were able to move into subsidized housing. Many of her neighbors have been hospitalized for coronavirus. Her mother is depressed, but without health insurance, she cannot afford to get treatment. Shree's school has been moved to online learning. However, Shree refuses to sign in most days. She is failing most of her classes and has begun spending her time with older teenage boys in the housing complex, despite her mother's dissuasion. So for those of you who are counting in Shree's story, she has an ACE score of six. Her father physically abused her. He also was verbally abusing her and her mother. So that gives three right there, physical and verbal abuse, as well as domestic violence. Her father went to prison and he drank too much, so we can assume some substance abuse. And her mom's depressed. For Shree, the impact is likely going to be great. The average life expectancy for an individual with zero ACEs is 80 years. However, for individuals with six or more ACEs, their life expectancy is 60 years. That's cutting 20 years off of their life. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is this happening and what can be done to help it? Initially, this is kind of the pyramid that they came up with to lead for answers. Adverse childhood experiences lead to social, emotional, and cognitive impairments. And those impairments lead to adoption of health risk behaviors. And those adoption of health risk behaviors leads to disease, disability, and social problems, and eventually early death. And that makes sense for the most part, but there were still some questions, some scientific gaps, if you will. The question of, well, why? Why are adverse childhood experiences across the board leading to social, emotional, and cognitive impairments? And why is it that if we take out this blue level, if we take out the adoption of health risk behaviors and somehow this individual says, you know what, I am not going to do any of those risky behaviors, they still have higher levels of disease, disability, and social problems and are still seeing earlier death. And so they needed to figure out we're, we're missing something here. And what they found was that the missing level was disrupted neurodevelopment. Adverse childhood experiences is actually changing the very formation of the brain. And the differences in that neurodevelopment is causing social, emotional, and cognitive impairments, which then is leading to adoption of health risk behaviors. But even if not, that disruption of neurodevelopment is leading to higher likelihood of disease, disability, and social problems. So the question we need to ask is why? What's happening at this disrupted neurodevelopment? In order to answer that question, we're going to talk about something called the window of opportunity. So many of us are probably familiar with the term neuroplasticity. But did you know that there's actually two types of neuroplasticity? One is cellular plasticity, and that's what we're seeing in this image here. I like to think of cellular plasticity as we're laying the neurocommunication roadways. So as you can see, for a newborn, we have some roadways, we have some neurons, but it's nothing compared to the number of neurons that we're seeing at age two. So we are just laying lots and lots of brand new roadways. But then there's another type of neuroplasticity, which is called synaptic plasticity. And this is meaning that the roads that get driven on a lot, the communication pathways that are happening in the brain that are getting lots and lots of use are get, becoming really strong and really fast. So these are the roads that, man, they're getting paved every month. They're, we're getting um, extra lanes added. But the ones that aren't getting so much use we're developing some potholes, we're getting a little bit of rubble, they're kind of falling to the wayside. 
The interesting thing is that from ages zero to five, we are seeing both cellular plasticity and synaptic plasticity. But after age five, we are not really laying any new roadways. We are simply strengthening the ones that are existing or losing the ones that are not getting as much use. So why is that important? Well, what we need to look at is the word toxic stress and what is happening in the midst of toxic stress. Toxic stress is defined as the extreme, frequent, or extended activation of the body's stress response without the buffering presence of a supportive adult. And so what we are seeing is when an individual is under toxic stress, is having this extended activation of the body's stress response, it is impacting that neurodevelopment. We're going to be looking specifically at two hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. Now I have the picture of the lion here because um, adrenaline and cortisol always make me think of a story of when I was in graduate school and I was down in Florida doing one of my rotations and I was a runner at that time. So every morning I would get up early in the morning before the sun would rise and would go running. And this was a new neighborhood. I didn't live in Florida before this. So I was um, staying with some, some friends. And whenever I would go running really early in the morning, I could swear I heard something growling. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And it really particularly seemed on this one stretch where there was like hardly any lights that I could really hear almost a roar. And so I came back and told the people that I was staying with, you know, I'm not kidding. I feel like I hear a lion out there when I'm running. And they laughed and they said, oh, you do. We live next to a, a lion preserve. <laughs> some, there's some people who had kind of a homegrown zoo type of thing, if you will. And they had lions and they would feed the lions every morning around 4.30 or 5 a.m. Well, what is happening is that when the body reacts to a threat or a stressor, in this case, a hungry lion, the brain triggers a series of hormone releases that activates the production of adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline is a hormone that is central to the body's short-term response to stress. So it's going to increase your heart rate. It's going to make your pupils dilate so that your more light can come in and we can respond and combat the threat. But cortisol is a critical hormone for long-term responses to stress. It's going to increase blood pressure. It's going to increase blood sugar. It's going to regulate your body's metabolism and immune response. So it's going to say, I'm going to give you what you need to be able to run for a long period of time. And I'm not going to worry about the things that you do not need, digesting food or fighting off diseases. We don't have time for that right now. The system that is controlling the release of these hormones is the HPA axis. The hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland, which tells the pituitary gland to tell the adrenal glands to release adrenaline and cortisol. Now, too much cortisol is actually not good for the brain. And so when that hypothalamus senses there is some cortisol that has been released for an extended period of time, it's going to shut off the hypothalamus and turn off this HPA axis. Now let's go back to our lion example and imagine that every day I am seeing this lion on the prowl, except he's not behind bars in a cage. He is actually out there in this forest. And every day I have no idea whether I'm going to encounter this lion or not. What my body is going to start doing is every time I put on my running shoes and get out on that street, my body is going to be producing cortisol in order to be able to say, I am ready to defend myself. I am ready to try to protect myself as much as you can against a lion. Um, but what happens is when we see this chronic release of cortisol, when there's an overload, a toxic stress amount of cortisol is that there is disruption in the actual development of the brain. It can't handle it. And so this helps us to be able to remember, okay, so when we see these adverse childhood experiences, this is what is explaining the gap.
This is how we can understand that when we have these traumatic experiences in the first 18 years of life, and particularly in those first five years of life, we are seeing social, emotional, and cognitive impairments because when this cortisol is repeatedly being released, it is destructive to the development of the brain. Now, when we see that destruction to the brain, it happens on a global level, if you will, the whole brain. Um, but there's a couple areas that I would really like to bring our attention to. The amygdala is part of the limbic system. So the limbic system is primarily responsible for playing important roles in emotions, processing of emotions, and behaviors. It's often gained a reputation for being the fear processing center of the brain, and that's primarily because of a lot of the initial research that was done on the amygdala. Um, interestingly enough, it shows that when we are exposed to some type of experience that is frightening, that the information reaches the amygdala and the amygdala responds before it's entered the conscious processing areas of the brain. So essentially what that means is before we're even aware that something scary is happening to us, our body is already reacting. And we've probably all had that experience. Um, you're walking through the woods and you see a snake and your body just lurches back. You didn't tell it to do that. You, it, it just happens by the amygdala saying, get the heck out of here. <laughs> well, this is super helpful in being able to respond to those types of emotions. Um, but it's also helpful in creating memories. So because the amygdala is part of the limbic system, which is so closely correlated with the hippocampus, it's going to say, not only am I going to react to be able to protect myself from this potentially harmful, dangerous situation, but I'm going to keep a little record to remember, hey, this happened at this part in the woods. And guess what? I bet every time you think about that hike, you'll remember that snake that you encountered. Because the amygdala plays such an important role in that record keeping, it also makes individuals likely to experience some form of anxiety. So um, if fear is the response to a present threat, something you are experiencing in that moment, then anxiety would be the dread or the response to a potential threat, something that hasn't happened yet, but it always could. Um, and so because of that, we often see that individuals who have experienced early childhood trauma can present as almost jumpy. Um, they're frequently looking around, highly aware of what's happening in their environment, and maybe their responses seem too exaggerated, um, maybe overprotective. They sometimes can misread facial expressions, and so what may be just a, um, a facial expression of boredom or maybe like a sour taste, they can see as disgust with them. Um, and so often, sometimes our emotional reactions do not appropriately fit what the environment or the individual that we have a relationship with is presenting. Next is the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is also a part of the limbic system, but the hippocampus's main job is memory. So not so much in the term of long-term memory, long-term storage. This is more of the shipping and receiving center, if you would. So when those new memories, that new information comes in throughout the day, we take it in, we store it in the hippocampus for the short term, and then sleep is the time that actually helps us transition that information from short-term to long-term memory. Now, as it would be, individuals who have experienced childhood trauma or of recent trauma often struggle with sleep. And so because of that process being disrupted, we often, a lot of that memory doesn't make it to long-term storage. And that makes things like learning quite difficult. It can make um, a child seem as though they're um, being disrespectful. It takes me 15 times to ask you to put on your backpack before you do it. Well, I'm just not processing that way. Or um, a lot of times our clients will come into our clinic and say, you know, I remember to do my homework, but I just don't remember to turn it in. Um, all of these things will make just a school environment, a work environment quite challenging because you kind of look like you're just disorganized and, and not paying attention. So 
So the last area that we're going to be talking about today um, is the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is responsible for things like decision-making, judgment, impulse control, attention, planning, problem-solving, organization, all of these areas that we clump together into a term that's called executive functioning skills. Now, what's interesting about the prefrontal cortex is that it actually consumes 10% of the brain's volume, and that's quite a bit. So a lot of neurons are running to this area, but it's the highest level of development. So we need to have good, strong foundations underneath this in order to be able to have the abilities to do this decision-making, judgment, impulse control, attention, planning, problem-solving. Habitually, this is a really difficult area for individuals who have experienced trauma. When we have teenagers who come into our office, this is an area that is habitually difficult for them. So mom and dad will typically re make re reports of um, they're failing all their classes because they can never remember to turn in their assignments. They um, start a huge project or a huge term paper the night before it's due. Um, you should see their bedroom. You should see their backpack. It's an absolute horrendous mess. A lot of times filling out an um, a application or even just completing a simple recipe are things that are really difficult for them. And so sometimes that planning and ability also impacts their ability to be able to plan for the future. I found that often when I would talk to kiddos just trying to connect with them and ask, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, just wanting to get to connect with them and know about their passions a little bit. The answer would always be, I don't know. And the reason why I think that is, is because that ability to be able to plan into the future and if my past experiences have taught me that, you know what, I can't really plan on anything in the future being there for me. I don't even want to set up high expectations for the future based off of what the past has told me. Then that question is really a challenge and sometimes a trigger for them. It's also um, habitually pretty difficult for that impulse control piece that we see here. A lot of times things that you and I may think about doing in our head just out of frustration in the moment, but we have the understanding to know this would not work out in my favor in the long run. They're not able to think that far ahead. And so um, a lot of times these teenagers will come in having made poor decisions in the moment, whether it was punching someone who said something nasty or cursing out a teacher who um, they felt was being too hard on them. And they have bigger results um, in school or sometimes with the police, but in the moment, I just couldn't control my impulses. So at this point, I like us to think about just <laughs> basically take a pause because everything that we've talked about up to this point is quite honestly very depressing. I've just made the case for what an impact trauma has and if you're like most of us, you've either experienced one of the adverse childhood experiences on this list um, or multiple. And all of us, I would venture to guess, know and deeply care about someone who is in that four or more ACE score category. It can feel kind of at this point like there's just no hope. But I am here to tell you that trauma is not a life sentence. And this is where things get absolutely crucial, both as believers and as medical professionals. Debbie Allen, a child welfare specialist at the Center for Resilient Children, said, it can feel really good in the moment to make promises that God doesn't make. Promises like, Jesus will make the pain go away. Sometimes he does in this life. Sometimes he doesn't but it is important to know that trauma is not a life sentence. It's not something that has to control us forever. No trauma is bigger than God. It can be arduous to authentically work through, even in the light of grace. It takes patience and boldness produced by the Spirit. But many have genuinely recovered, and more have learned to live grace-filled and fruitful lives beyond and despite even because of their pain and its triggers. 
all of our suffering is some expression of the now and not yet of the Christian experience. Many of us may feel ourselves not running to glory, but limping, others crippled and carried. But take heart. Christ himself refuses to forget the scars of his earthly pain, even in glory. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ is the one who bought and signifies the breakability of the chains of death. We may not feel the full weight of that hope today, but we will one day. So as, his, as Christian healthcare pro professionals, where do we turn? Well, first we turn to scripture. That is where we are going to find our true guide map on how to love and care for those individuals who have experienced trauma in our lives. But secondly, in our medical practice, we are going to turn to research. And the good thing is research Show us, shows us the detriment that these early childhood traumatic experiences have, but it also shows us the hope. And we're about to jump into that now. But first, scripture. Our God is a God of redemption. Psalm 107, verses 13 through 16. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. John 10.10 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Okay. In Colossians 1, 12 through 14, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our God is a God of redemption and our God is a God of relationship. And often those two correlate together. A few months ago, I had a friend over for lunch, and she was just expressing to me some of the concerns that her seven-year-old was having. Uh, but the more we talked, the more it also came into light that her son had had a great deal of medical trauma, really the first seven years of his life, and also some relational trauma early in his life as we were discussing the implications that she was just weary with battling day in and day out on behaviors and difficulties with learning that he was experiencing and some of those social skills that he just didn't have. I gave her hope in sharing that though the things that he had experienced before she was his stepmom, so before she came into his life were out of her control and that the Difficulties that she was encountering that day were very real and very frustrating. That she had hope in the fact that the positive relationship she had built with her new son, the relationship that she had poured so intentionally and does continue to pour so intentionally into, is almost like the antidote to trauma. Research is showing time and time again that the single largest contributor to resilience is relationships. And in order for you to really hear about this, I am going to play a small video from the experts. Early childhood trauma changes the biology of the brain. Well, early childhood support also changes the biology of the brain. What studies of resilience show that even when children have insecure attachments in the home, if they've had at least one secure attachment with a daycare provider, a preschool teacher, or another adult in their lives, then that makes a huge difference for them having the seed of resilience. They may still have difficulties, but because they've had that one secure relationship, that relationship where they felt 
that another individual, another adult, knows them and feels what's going on inside of them, those kids have the potential to do very well in the future. We can see imaging today uh, of before and after trauma and see what happens in the brain. And we can also see repair that happens in the brain when our interventions have been successful. What makes children get better following a trauma is connection to other human beings. Human beings who are present, who are patient, who are kind, who are sensitive, and they, they don't need to be necessarily psychologically insightful. They don't need to know anything about trauma. All they need to know, know is that they're right there with this child. They're trying to be comforting. They're trying to be supportive. They're trying to encourage. Those kinds of interactions end up being much more therapeutic and healing than many of the other things that we try to do with kids. Teachers can look more at their children, be more emotionally present for children, touch them, uh, work on their own nervous system and their own regulation. If they're angry and they're uh, out of control in terms of what's going on inside of themselves, the message that they're going to convey to the child is, I'm angry and I don't like you. If you're an adult and there are children in your life, whether you're in law enforcement, a teacher, a parent, a foster parent, whatever you are, and you know that a child has been exposed to something that's potentially traumatic, uh, the first thing that you should be aware of is that not all traumatic events lead to disastrous mental health outcomes. In fact, the vast majority of children that are traumatized actually do pretty well, but they do need your attention, they do need your kind support, and they do need your awareness about what are warning signs that would tell you to actually take the next step and try to get some professional help. It's up to us. We can't wait for a they to do this spreading of the message that we can do something about it, that children, especially young children, have the most possibility for health and plasticity, for overcoming these early traumas if we as a community, a large community, support them. We have permission now to meet children's needs. We have permission now from neuroscience to give children what they need and to me that is so exciting. If there was one place I would like to start with individuals as well as our society trying to make a difference to, to really stop the cross-generational passage of trauma and of insecure attachment, it would be for parents to start a process of self-understanding. It basically costs nothing except the time and emotion that it takes for parents to begin on that process. And we all can do it. And the people who benefit most besides ourselves are our children. We're spending literally 95% of our public dollars to change the brain because that's what mental health is, that's what public education is, that's what juvenile justice intervention is. All of these are trying to change the brain. And we're spending almost nothing in the first five years of life when the brain is easiest to modify. And it takes the least amount of professional input, the least amount of insight. It takes just high quality caregiving. It's us, not they. It's, it's each one of us doing it now, not later, but now. So what can I do? Well, first off, I just have to say that video is such an encouragement to me that not only do harmful relationships show neurologically through research that there is a detrimental impact and we see a lifelong effect of those harmful relationships, but the reverse is true too, that we also see helpful and healing relationships also have a neurological impact in the good and that it helps regrow those neurons and that that also carries an impact for the rest of those children and individuals' lives. It's the story of redemption baked into neuroscience. And so what can you do? What can I do specifically as a healthcare professional, as a, as a medical provider? First and foremost, you can screen for ACEs. This just gets the awareness out there. This allows the individual to know, I care. I care more than just about your teeth being clean today. I care more about just your hospital visit. I care about what you've experienced beforehand because it may influence how I treat you today. Um, it also helps change the social norms. This allows us to be able to ask about it and starts to bring awareness that these things do have impact. 
Ask intentional questions and listen. Sometimes when you get that questionnaire back, it can be easy just to file it away and say thank you and then get on with your typical interview. But ask questions. See what they would be willing to talk about. Do you want to tell me about any of these? Um, can you? Do you think any of this is effective, what you're experiencing today? Um, ask them questions about what's going on in life right now in the midst of COVID. How are you handling the stress? All of us are experiencing stress. So it doesn't just have to be an individual who has experienced trauma to ask them how they're handling the stress, but ask everyone and be ready to, to listen. Be an intentional observer. Um, watch how mom and dad interacts with the child. Are they quite a bit rougher or do they seem um, completely oblivious to the needs of the child? Who's, who's bringing the child or the individual to the appointments? Are they the parents or are they grandparents and other caregivers consistently? Um, why might that be? Look for signs that might show hunger or signs of bruising, um, fingernails that are being unkept, clothing. And does it have stains on it that seem weeks old or consistently tears? Is there a smell that you consistently notice? And of course, as that video just showed, number one thing is encourage relationships. Encourage those relationships through sports and teachers and school mentoring programs and involvement in a church, involvement in their community. I think one of the best local ministries that our churches can be a part of are local mentoring programs because we are truly undoing the work of trauma and allowing Jesus to come into these lives and do the real work. Many of you may be familiar with the term trauma-informed approach, and if you are not or if you're interested in trying to find out more about it, I cannot encourage enough for you to check out the Pediatric Integrated Care Collaborative Specifically, that website that's right below, picc.jhu.edu backslash thetoolkit.html. This is an excellent website that just has so many resources specifically for healthcare and medical providers to be able to, perform, to provide a trauma-informed approach. Um, my first goal, first and foremost, is to make sure that when that client comes in, that they feel safe, that they get a sense that they can trust me, and that I am giving them voice and choice, something that was taken from them in the moments of trauma. I am going to make sure that my office is a place where they get to speak and they are heard and they get choices offered to them for their preferences always. So a few things that you can do to provide a trauma-informed approach is simple things like greet every person individually at the beginning of your visit. If mom comes, if dad comes, if grandma comes, if, if the siblings are tagging along, make eye contact, ask their name, use their name throughout the time together to be able to show I care individually about each of you. Be self-aware to your own mood. Give them your full attention even if you're busy, make sure that you are using an empathetic tone and summarize what you're saying. Make sure that you're repeating yourself and check in on their understanding of what you're saying. Does that make sense to you? Am I making myself clear? Ask things like that. Make sure that you explain your role. Emphasize that your commitment is to them for the long term. So often these individuals have had Many healthcare providers come in and come out, but your goal is to be with them for the long term. And even if that's not your specific role, if you're maybe a nurse in the ICU unit, ensure that your commitment is to their long-term good. Uh, be clear about what you'll cover in your visit and ask for questions regularly. And ask open-ended questions. Be clear about why you're asking and what you plan to do with the information. A lot of times these individuals are quite guarded about what you're asking them. And so they'll tuck it away or try to judge about how much should I really share with you. But if you explain, this is the reason I'm asking this question and this is what it could tell me 
then, okay, now I'm on the same team. Now I can understand why you would ask that and I'm gonna give a fuller answer. And recognize those signs of stress. Your questions may be triggering or distressing. Consider, do they wanna ask answer this question in front of the other individuals who are present in the room? Um, look and be familiar with those signs of stress, those darting eyes, that increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, legs twitching, hands um, fidgeting, and just assess how you interact with that client based off of the nonverbal signs that they're giving you. Again, the Pediatric Integrated Care Collaborative has a great, much more thorough toolkit that I cannot encourage you enough to look through, print out, and share with your whole office. So to end our presentation today, I have a picture of this flower that's coming up out of this dry, hard, broken ground. And I really believe that that is the position that we as healthcare providers get to be in, is that we get to be a little bit of the watering that comes in the midst of this hard season of coronavirus. We get to be a little bit of the sunlight and the nurturing um, uh, vitamins and soil that comes in in the midst of the trauma that they have experienced either presently or in their past to be able to see beautiful growth come out of it. We know that we are one of the few individuals who get an opportunity to attempt true, genuine relationship with these clients certainly in the midst of coronavirus, and for many of these children and adults at all, someone who cares enough to ask the hard questions and to listen. Thank you so much for listening to today's breakout session. If you have any further questions, feel free to reach out to me via email or your cell phone number, and I will be on here for the remainder of the hour um, to answer any questions that you might have. Again, thank you for attending the GMHC, and we hope that you get to go out there and be a bit of the water and the sunlight to those who are desperately in need.